Harry Met Virtual Traveller, hello and welcome to Stories from Law, a monthly podcast that explores folklore and the stories it inspires. My name is Dawn Nelson and I am an author and professional storyteller. This month, Patreons chose the theme of The Dead Do Tell Tales. So for this episode, I will be looking at the spectre of death, the folklore surrounding it, and the psychopomps, harbingers, and, well, portents that tell us that death is coming. The story from law for this episode is The Singing Bone. Due to the nature of the subject covered in this podcast, I would recommend this as adult listening, and that you should listen through first before letting any of the younger members of your household listen with you. There are many expressions that we have come up with for the end note of our lives. Kick the bucket, pushing up daisies, passed on, turned up your toes, carked it, pop your clogs, pegged it, six feet under, sleeping with the fishes, bought it or bought the farm. There are many reasons for these phrases and the last one is actually quite tragic as it came about in the 1950s and was used to refer to the US Air Force trainees who crashed on farmland. Compensation was awarded to the farmer for the destruction of the land that obviously had come about when the pilot crashed and so therefore the pilot had bought the farm with his life. The point of this litany of words that allow us to avoid the subject of death is just that. We rarely actually say what we mean when it comes to death. And so is it any wonder that there are so many stories, folklore, mythology, rituals and superstitions surrounding this subject. Death itself is often portrayed as a tall figure in a black cloak, sometimes faceless and usually carrying a scythe, leading to the nickname the Grim Reaper, or just Reaper. They are often just a skeleton, and this figure has also been depicted as carrying a bow, spear, or even a violin made of bone, and in the English and German cultures, predominantly seen as male. But in the French, Spanish and Italian cultures, it's often portrayed as male or female. Le Ancou is one of the more gender-fluid death figures and hails from Breton folklore. Ancou is effectively the Grim Reaper. But this figure changes, as Ancou themselves appears as a vision of the last person in the community to die. They do always look the same, though. There's still a skeleton and they will have a white hat, and often their head is revolving in this case. But you just know who it was. The Anku arrives in a cart or wagon in a kind of bring-out-your-dead-style scenario, and sometimes can also be found captaining a large ship or a barge called the Bagnoz. This transports the souls of the dead to the other side, as well as Anku's cart or wagon. I guess it depends where you die as to which vehicle Anku comes to collect you in. There are, of course, a number of psychopomps in folklore and mythology. That is, spirits, angels and or ghosts who come for your soul and escort you to the other side. Another collector of the dead from Irish folklore is the Dullahan. The Dullahan can be either male or female as well and is headless, or rather his or her head isn't exactly on their shoulders. No, They carry their head under their arm, and the head wears a grotesque ear-to-ear smile. The Dullahan, too, possesses a carriage, and a little like a banshee will often come for the person who is about to die, so before they are dead, but definitely on their way. 
But if the Dullahan does come calling, you should never look directly at them. They do not like to be observed and they will beat you with a whip that is made from the vertebrae of a spine. So now we know that death can take many forms when he or she arrives to take your soul. How do you know they're coming? Well, there are a plethora of signs and portents that warn the unsuspecting soul of impending doom. In fact, pretty much anything out of the ordinary at one point or another has pointed to the arrival of a psychopomp, and so therefore certain death. A bird singing when it doesn't usually, a flower blooming out of season, clocks striking 13 times, pictures falling off the wall, dogs howling, clothes creasing in a diamond shape that you see at the top of coffins. All these things are seen, at the very least, as portents of bad luck, and more than likely a death in the family. There are, however, in folklore, some warnings are without a shadow of a doubt considered harbingers of death. In nature, birds are often portents of death. A robin coming to your house was a sure sign someone in the family would die. And most birds in the corvid family, so crows, rooks, ravens, magpies, they're considered to be omens too. The shriek of a barn owl was a sure sign someone was about to pass over. And, well, you can imagine... If you didn't know what it was, that chilling sound on a dark night may just send shivers down your spine and have you contemplating your own mortality. To bring hawthorn flowers into the house was extremely bad luck and would result in a death, most definitely. But this was perhaps thought to be because the flowers of the hawthorn, as they rotted, they started to smell like rotting corpses. And so it was reminiscent of what may happen if somebody in the house died. Because... They weren't always carried to their grave that quickly. An adder coming to your door is also a sign of death. However, as this is the only venomous snake in Britain, it is very possible that it's simply for this reason. You wouldn't want to step on an adder that was basking on your doorstep on your way out to work. It's very unlikely it will kill you, but it will definitely hurt. Household chores carry their own dangers, for if you were to drop a loaf you had just taken out of the oven, well... That would mean there was a death in the household within the year. And if you had the foresight to batch bake, then you should under no circumstances take all three loaves out of the oven at once. When your other half returned from working in the fields, they should leave their shovel at the door. For if they carry it over their shoulder and into the house, well, there's another risk of a loss in the family again. So those are just a few of the signs that might tell us that uh, death is on their way. But there are also several folkloric figures who are said to be harbingers of death. One of the most well-known of these is, of course, the Banshee from Irish folklore. The Banshee is said to be heard wailing before the death of a family member, and in some cases, some families have their own personal Banshee. You know you'd made it when you got your own personal Banshee. And this Banshee will always warn them of an impending death in the family. The cries of the banshee are said to be terrifying, wailing, howling, gnashing of teeth that cannot be mistaken for anything else. Although it has got me thinking of fox cries in the night and those barn owl shrieks again. In Wales, this figure is called the Cahareth and serves the same purpose, to foretell a death with a disembodied wailing. This being is sometimes synonymous with the Hag of the Mist, a most hideous and ugly being, wrinkled and unkept, with long black teeth and sallow, deeply corporeal features. And that has me thinking back to last month's episode, A Country for Old Hags, and all of that folklore surrounding the Caliac, who is just that, a hag of the land. In Scotland, 
it is the Benir that wails and is another predictor of death. Only this time, she's quite specific about who she is wailing for. She is a wailing washerwoman who can be seen trying desperately to wash the blood out of white shirts and the clothes of fallen soldiers and warriors. She is often dressed in red, carrying a wooden stick to beat the washing with and the candle. She haunts the banks of the rivers and streams, and if you see the Ben Nier on the way to battle, well, then your fate is sealed. This concept crops up again in the French hero songs known as Chanson de Guest, where the victim is marked for death by a red cross on their clothing. This denotes the hero or warrior with the red cross will be fighting their last battle. Both these pieces of folklore are, of course, very reminiscent of the well-known La Lorena, a figure from Mexican folklore. She too is a crying woman, but instead of mourning the dead on the battlefield, she is mourning the loss of her drowned children. But that is a story for another day. So, once you've had that omen of death, that portent that has come to tell you that death is on its way, and indeed the harbinger of death has escorted you to the other side, what happens then? Well, there is, of course, the obvious heaven and hell present in Christianity. And what you do in this life depends on where you go in the next. But there are many variations of this. And I will look a little further at this in the extended version of the podcast on Patreon. But what I'd like to look at now is what folklore says will happen if you don't get to make a traditional choice of where you go. In other words, if you end up in purgatory, a kind of liminal space, or worse still, undead. Ghosts are a popular theme in books, film, TV, and of course, on our festivals, the ever popular Night of the Dead, Halloween, or Samhain. There are many, many ghost stories, and as humans sitting around a fire on a dark night, we are very familiar with them. There are several reasons why a ghost may be hanging around. Something they've left undone, so that their death can be avenged, perhaps? They themselves were maybe the wrongdoer and they need to put it right, or they're just never going to go to heaven or hell, because whatever they did was so bad. In the story of One Night in Paradise, an Italian folktale, a man's best friend returns from the grave to perform his best man's duties, at his friend's subsequent wedding. So therefore he has a task that is left undone that he comes back to do. In the story of Stingy Jack, he is so reprehensible in life that neither heaven nor hell will have him, and so he is left to pace purgatory forevermore with only a burning coal from hell to light his way. Hence, Jack of the Lantern. Vampires are a more commonly known undead revenant, and in fact become immortal through feasting on the blood of the living, passing on their affliction to others in this way. Silver bullets, garlic and crucifixes are amongst the many ways to repel a vampire, but this is well-known folklore. They are known by many names across the world, and there are other folkloric beings with vampiric qualities, such as Lugats in Albanian folklore, Nakzera in German folklore. But there are differences with these beings. For example, the Nakzera is specifically someone who has committed suicide or died in an accident. And the rising again aspect of this legend is not an infectious one and cannot be passed on. Another favourite with filmmakers is zombies, ever present in popular culture. The only way to kill a zombie is decapitation, thus saving yourself and the poor undead soul that is the zombie. Interestingly, there are some tales from Haiti that tell of how people have been given poisonous tetrodotoxin found in several species of pufferfish, and this has then rendered them immobile and to all intents and purposes, dead, when in fact they are not. Real-life zombies. 
But as fascinating and curiously captivating as these particular undead are, they are very well known. And so I'd like to take a look at a few of the lesser known undead revenants. The Draugr from Scandinavian folklore are ghosts in a corporeal form. That is that they have a physical body. They guard treasure which may be hidden in their graves. And in the Old Norse, the term was used to describe a ghost ship. So the two are often combined to create a ship full of seafaring undead. Terrifying and a lot like the folklore of Davy Jones and the Flying Dutchman. Again, in Scandinavian folklore, the return of the soul to complete unfinished business is referred to as a gajenganga. Apologies if I have mispronounced that. The name is thought to translate into English as walking again. There are several ways to prevent this from happening. For example, painting various symbols on the coffin and carrying the coffin around the churchyard three times before they were interred. It is believed that the Jenganga can in actual fact pass on its affliction to the living through biting or pinching. And there we go, we're back to zombies. In Indonesia, the Pokong is thought to be the soul of the dead person trapped in their burial shroud. This comes from the belief that it takes a person 40 days to travel to heaven. After 40 days, the ties of the shroud must be loosened to allow the soul to leave. If they are not, the body will jump out of the grave and demand the ties to be loosened. This idea of it taking a person 40 days to travel to heaven is also prevalent in some Russian beliefs that the soul spends 40 days travelling to and from earth and heaven until they eventually travel across a rainbow bridge to heaven. But they're not undead. That's just part of the cycle of them dying. Finally, in China, the Yiangxi is a reanimated corpse that hops around looking for victims from whom they will suck the life force, akin to a kind of energy vampire. Not only do we tell of ghosts and the reanimated dead returning, but also stories tell us of voices from beyond the grave. We don't necessarily have to see a ghost. We could just hear it. And these messengers can come in many forms. So visions, dreams, oral hallucinations. And in many stories, they are a bird or an animal messenger, singing bones or instruments. Which leads us to this month's story, The Singing Bone. This story was collected by the Grimm brothers, but it is also present in many other collections of stories. Joseph Jacobs collected it as Binori, and that's the version that I tell. But this was based on a ballad, and you will also find this ballad in other forms, for example, the Trois Sisters, which is one of the child's ballads. So without further ado, let me tell you one of my favourite stories to tell and that is the story of two sisters who lived on the banks of the Benori. Follow me along the river Benori. As you follow the path, you will wander past reed beds, ducks and swans, water mills, small villages and large towns. And eventually, just past the mountains, you will find a manor house. And there, there lives a widower and his two daughters. They are Rose and Maria. Rose is the older of the two. She has long, dark hair and olive skin, beautiful brown eyes. She's a very handsome girl. Her younger sister, Maria, has long, blonde, flaxen hair and eyes as green as the meadows. She too is a beauty. These two sisters 
have grieved together for the loss of their mother. They have played together as they were growing up. They have laughed together. And they have kept the house together. But there is one thing that they cannot both do. And that is love the same man. And so it is. When a prince who has been out hunting requires shelter for the night and their father allows them to stay at the manor house, the prince falls in love with Maria. Now, Maria is the younger and, well, it should really be the older one that marries first. But the father he is not going to turn down the attention of a prince. If one of his daughters can marry well, well, then surely that is better than nothing. And so he encourages this courtship. The prince visits week after week. He spends many days walking in the meadows with Maria and Maria too falls in love with the prince and it is arranged that they will be married. Their wedding day is set. Rose and Maria are down by the banks of the Benori and they're washing the cloth that will be used to make Maria's wedding dress. Maria is full of joy and the wonders of what she will experience when she reaches the palace. How wonderful it will be to have servants and her every wish looked after and to marry a handsome prince and never to want for anything else ever again. And Rose, who too loves this prince, and feels that it really should be her that is marrying him and not her younger, upstart sister. Well, this jealousy has festered within her for weeks. She can't hear any more of this from Maria. And so she pushes her sister into the river. It is spring. The water is high and fast flowing. And it does not take long for Maria to be washed away down the stream. She desperately tries to pull her head above the water, screaming to her sister, help me, help me, thinking that her sister cannot have done this on purpose. But her sister stands there, albeit weeping. Her sister stands there and watches as Maria disappears under the water of the Benori. Rose rushes home to her father and tells him of the terrible accident that has befallen Maria. She's holding the soaking wet cloth and she looks down at it and she says, but father, let us not anger the prince. He can still have a match. I will marry him. He breaks the news to the prince, who is, of course, devastated, but he is not unaware of Rose's beauty. And he thinks this would be a good match as well. After all, her father is a nobleman. And so he agrees to this. And instead of Maria's dress being made from the cloth, Rose's dress is made from it. And they marry. And the two of them, Rose and the prince, they have a happy life together. They have two children. And eventually the prince becomes king and Rose his queen. Many years have passed when back down on the banks of the Benori, a travelling musician who is out of work sits down on the chalky ground in order to eat his lunch. He sits there in the full sun of the day with the birds singing. He can hear the music of the world and he longs to be able to play his music himself again. 
for an audience who will willingly listen. He is eating his bread and cheese and drinking his small ale when he looks down beside him. And down there, down in the chalky, sandy soil, he sees something white that isn't chalk. And he pushes the soil away and the dust away and he sees it is a rib bone. He pulls it out of the soil. One perfect, glistening, white rib bone. Must be that of a horse, he thinks. Because when he looks further, he sees some flaxen yellow golden hair there too. He pushes the soil away from that and pulls out a clump. He thinks he can put what he thinks is horse hair, string it across the rib bone and create himself a harp, a bone harp. So he does this. He puts his lunch away and his small ale and he starts to string the bone. When he's finished, he wonders what sort of a sound it will make. And so he holds it up and starts to pluck the harp. And here is the sound that comes from it. My sister pushed me in the street, but Nori, oh, the Nori, and no one heard my dying screams, the Nori, oh, the Nori. Wow, thinks the musician. This harp speaks and sings. This is a harp that will play music for a king, and I must take it to him immediately. He hurriedly packs any of his belongings that he's left on the side back into his bag and he carries on and follows the path down past the Benori to the city where Rose and her king rule. He knocks on the grand door of the palace. I have a harp for the king, a harp like no other, a harp that sings. Well, the guard, the guard doesn't believe him. He says, don't be ridiculous. The king's not going to be one to be bothered about silly things like that. You are clearly lying. Oh, I'm not. I'm not. It sings, says the musician. And so, well, the guard thinks, you know, it's, it's been a bit of a slow day for him. This could be quite entertaining. And so he secures him an audience with the king. The musician goes into the grand hall where there on the two thrones are sat Rose the queen and her king. The king says, I, I hear, I hear you have a magical harp. Do, do play it for us. I will, sire. You will not believe what you hear. Here, here it is. And he holds up the bone harp with the hair strings and he starts to pluck. My sister pushed me in the street, Benori, oh Benori, and no one heard my dying screams, Benori, oh Benori. Wow! Wow, says the king. That's amazing. Does it do anything else? I'm not sure. Let's see, sire. So again, he holds up the bone and hair harp and plays once more. And there she sits beside the king, Benorio, Benori, and never pay for all her sins, Benorio, Benori. Rose's face is ashen. She knows that the harp speaks the truth and now she remembers what she had done all of those years ago. In that king's land, there is only one thing that can happen to somebody who has committed murder, regardless of whether or not they are a queen. And so Rose was put to death. The princes 
were left without a mother and the king without a wife. A great sadness hung over that city from that day on. And if you follow me back along the banks of the River Benori, well, who knows what other stories it may hold. That is one of my favourite stories to tell for various different reasons. It, it appeals to the themes that I enjoy in story because I started writing murder mysteries when I first started my journey as an author and storyteller. So it is a kind of murder mystery. But also the reason I like it is because there are two strong female characters in it with their own demons, if you like. They're not passive in this story. And neither of the men have names. I don't know whether you noticed that, but it's normally the other way around in story. The men have names and the women don't. You'll find this story retold over and over in many different formats. So do watch out for it, because it's a cracker. Thank you to patrons for their continued support of my storytelling and, of course, the podcast. You can become a patron to benefit from a range of rewards, and my patron is called Rewild Yourself Through Story. And it's focused on using story to reconnect with the land we live on and the nature within it. You get digital zines, Wheel of the Year celebration sheets, audio stories and, of course, extended versions of this podcast. They're all available as rewards. In the extended version of this episode, available via my Patreon, I will continue to look at death in mythology and the way different cultures look after their departed. The second story that I'm telling for patrons for this episode is my original tale, The Legend of the Banshee. There are, of course, other ways to support the podcast. You can do this by sharing the podcast with your friends or leaving me a review, as all of this helps these stories to travel to new audiences and find new souls and bones to warm. If you wish to hear more stories woven with folklore in the old ways, you can find me on Instagram as dd underscore storyteller, on Facebook as dd storyteller, and via my Facebook group, Stories from Law, where there are Facebook lives, behind the scenes, and we share books, music recommendations, and chat a little about the podcast. I hope to see you there, as I'd love to tell you another story. Until then, I'll see you next time. Toodle pip!